Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So Emily, just back from sunny Portugal. Nice way to spend some of the half term. I'm glad you managed to get away. How was it? How were you feeling? I had a... A migraine on the day we flew there that lasted three days and uh, I felt good on the final day. (laughs) (laughs) I got some sun and some sea and then now I'm feeling like I was late just now because I am so tired that I could not work out how to get off the sofa. (laughs) I'm so shattered. And I've started getting nausea and I've started getting a headache again. So, oh no. Yeah. It's like on a constant cycle. How was your week, Noreen? It was pants. <laughs> I mean, I had flu. And so just felt really unwell under the weather. But my COVID symptoms are kind of like, you know, <laughs> you know, you just learn to live with it. Honestly, like I was just thinking about this. All of, the people that have got long COVID, I don't think will ever get back to how they were previously. No. We will hope for the best, have good days, but we'll never be quite what we were. Which is uh, hugely depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just learned to pretty much have a headache every day. Remember I said to you last week, I had four days without a headache and you were like, well, take that as a win. Because four consecutive days without a headache is amazing for me. And it's kind of a record not having a headache. I have just learnt to live with having a headache. Yeah. But this week we spoke to Robin McNellis, who is a respiratory physio at the Wellington Hospital. And he's also a um, long COVID sufferer. So one of the reasons we spoke to Robin was that he's... You know, he has all this expertise in breathing and long COVID obviously affects the lungs in some, but he's also been through it and is suffering with long COVID. And so has this, again, like a lot of the duality, that duality that a lot of the medical professionals that we speak to are having is because they're bringing to bear their expertise on a syndrome or or a symptom that they themselves are suffering from. He does have some excellent advice in terms of how he managed his own recovery and how he is managing people. And the breathing disorders that he talks about, I think it's really something that quite a lot of us could just have a think about. I would like to go right back to the beginning and hear your personal story of COVID, how you came to realise that you had the long COVID and going right through to where you are now in terms of your recovery? I've been a cardiac and respiratory physio since 1999. Um, So had treated a lot of people with a lot of the presenting uh, symptoms of COVID and and of long COVID um, for for many, many years. And for all that COVID uh, is new, um, the problems that patients were suffering, I had been seeing literally for decades in some cases. And so I got quite frustrated when people said, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done because COVID's new. Well, yes, but as Darren had talked about the things that he extrapolated from his background in HIV and cancer care, it was the same for me with uh, breathing pattern disorders was one of the things I really worked with and all the trigger factors, etc. So I'd been doing that for, for many years. We had been planning how we could cope with the impending tsunami as we thought was going to hit us. Everything was quite stressful, as you can imagine. Um, We were going to have to work in a very different way to what we'd worked before. And um, we didn't really know what the future held. We were trying to plan for every eventuality. Um, Mid-March, I did the Brentwood Half Marathon, which was meant to be part of my build-up to London, but London had been cancelled. Now, I'd done the the 19 previous London marathons. The year before, I had done a 2.49 marathon. Wow. You're quite fit. 
I was. <laughs> um, and then the week after the half marathon, I just wasn't feeling right. But no fever, no cough. And everybody was saying, well, we're all stressed. You're not sleeping. Of course, you're going to be getting headaches. Of course, you're going to be feeling fatigue. And then I returned to work the following Monday, um, 23rd of March. And um, somebody on the ward had tested positive. And everybody on the ward, quite rightly, got swabbed. And the following day, it came back that mine was positive. And ironically, I was actually feeling less fatigued, feeling a little bit better. And then I had to stay at home, isolate. And a few days later, felt really rough then started to seem to make a bit of improvement. Two weeks on from my initial, obviously, contracting the virus, yeah, I was still positive. So it gave me a bit more time to be off work. Then we had the Easter weekend, and then I'd tested negative by that stage, two negatives, (laughs) the second one on my birthday. And on my birthday, I went out and I jogged 5K. My daughter was on her bike, I was jogging. I had looked at a lot of the early guidance and it was to really reduce your intensity, reduce your volume and ease back very gradually. And is that the, that was the first physical activity exercise of any measure that you did since you first had the symptoms? Yeah. Um, So then I got a bit of chest tightness, a little bit of aches and pains, but I thought, is this anxiety? Because it's the first time. I've done anything. Got back to work the following week and by the Thursday I was just feeling wiped out and spoke to occupational health. Then they said you need to be reviewed by a respiratory physician. It sounds like something's just not right here. So I I recalled all my uh, history to the respiratory physician and he'd said more than me being a respiratory physio. it It was actually the history I gave of my from my running background as to my differences from normal. And he thought it was very unlikely that I would have a blood clot because I had done a step test in the hospital. My oxygen levels hadn't dropped, but I had got a lot of pain around my thoracic spine and right up to my shoulder and down to my waist uh, for two hours after walking up 40 steps. So he said, there's a, there's enough clinical evidence to justify putting you through a scanner to see if you've got any inflammation. And uh, I had a blood clot on my lung. And he couldn't quite believe it, but I knew that something just wasn't right. And he'd said how important it was, the precise details that I could give him and the comparison with normal and really from me being very in tune with my body. So then I got on to blood thinners, um, which I remained on for about seven months. Got gently back into doing a bit of jogging once he told me that it was okay, but then got symptoms again. And I had a routine cardiac review. And the doctor had said, Robin, you're very driven. I know what you're like. You just want to get back to running. It could be that you're being unrealistic. But let's do a test just to give you some reassurance and just to double check that there's nothing else going on. So I did a a treadmill test with uh, an echocardiogram beforehand and afterwards. And I actually got chest pain right there, and which is where I'd been getting it when I had been doing uh, other activities. And it showed that I had pericarditis, so inflammation around the heart. So I got put on drugs for that to help that. And... That resolved. And so that was the beginning of June. By the end of June, I'd been given the go-ahead to very gently start doing a little bit of jogging. I started to build things up and got to a day that I just felt tired and fat and unfit rather than feeling unwell. And I think that as some of the other podcasts, I've heard about people talking about the difference between tiredness and true fatigue. And at that point, I had looked into chronic fatigue and to post-viral fatigue and a lot of the work that had been put out into the public domain by the Physios for IME group. And I thought, well, I've possibly got a little bit of 
post-viral fatigue, but I've certainly not got the symptoms of the picture of chronic fatigue. I wasn't at that stage getting the post-exertional malaise. Um, I would have a little bit of tiredness, maybe more than you would have expected. It would take me a little bit longer to recover, but then I was still making uh, a little bit of progress and feeling that I was just as I say, fat and unfit. So you weren't having crashes every time you exercised, every time no, you ran? Not at that stage. And But then come July, I had got to a point that having made a little bit of progress and just feeling more tired than I would expect to, I felt that every time that I tried to do anything, I would take it easier and easier and it would have a worse and worse and worse effect on me. And my fatigue got worse. I noticed a pattern. I'd stopped trying to jog at that point. I was going out for a walk in Epping Forest with my daughter on a Sunday. And on the Tuesday, I would feel exhausted. And at that stage, I was working Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I thought, is it the work that's tiring me out? Or is it the delayed effect of the walk? So then the following week, I changed my walk to the Saturday. And the Monday, I was wiped out. It's interesting that it's a two-day delay. You can see the direct correlation. Yeah, and that that was quite typical with a lot of the stuff that had been put out from the physios from ME group. And they were uh, very much saying, well, there seemed to be some similarities and some differences with what we are now calling long COVID um, and with the condition that they had been um, treating for years. And it was very characteristic of this delayed effect. And one of the things that I have done either mentally or physically and encouraged lots of other people to do is to diarise things so that you can see if there's a pattern uh, and try to see what is happening. And it became quite a regular pattern. And then I actually gave my first presentation, my first webinar on post-COVID rehab. And I was presenting with our medical director and he knew a little bit about my story, but not too much. And he said to me, you're you're just not right. You're more short of breath than you should be. And even when I was talking, he was noticing it. So he said, look, don't want to step on anybody's toes, but come to me for a second opinion. We'll do a full barrage of tests, including a cardiac MRI lung function testing, gas exchange testing, and see if there's anything that's underlying, see if there's any inflammation there. And there wasn't. Everything largely was fine. The one thing that wasn't perfect was that the the CT scan had shown that the blood clot hadn't changed. So it hadn't fibrosed and it hadn't disappeared after four months on blood thinners. But everything else was fine. And they knew that by this stage that some blood clots were more persistent than normal. So they decided, let's keep you on the the blood thinners and we will take things from there. And I was told that I had the chronic fatigue type presentation of post-COVID and that there was no magic pill. There's no silver bullet. A lot of it was going to be about lifestyle modification, really easing back in all my activities, trying to get to that sustainable baseline where I wasn't having the energy crashes and trying to to build things once I'd got to that sustainable level to build things very slowly from there. And one of the key things was by that point, I was tired all the time, but my quality and quantity of sleep was very poor. We are hearing from all factions that it's building back your sleep, building back your gut health. Reining in the exercise, I think what a lot of people don't notice is that you also then need to rein in the cognitive exercise, the working and those things. Were you also seeing patterns with work when you went to work? Did that did you suffer more than you did on days where you weren't working? It was really difficult to tell because I was working every other day. It was a delayed reaction to it. It was so variable anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also my daughter for part of the time had been homeschooled. My wife was working from home. And then our neighbours decided to do some building work. Right. So it was hardly a restful environment around the house. 
Because essentially your stress levels were elevated the majority of the time. I mean, I think that's true for so many people that you couldn't find that space. You obviously have all this experience of dealing with long COVID yourself. Have you have you used that in your work? My boss had always said that I was good with empathy with my patients. And he said that this has supercharged me. I was seeing a lot of people that were really frustrated. They felt that nobody understood. They felt they were being palmed off. And they were presenting similarly to me. But it, I didn't want to make the session about me. I wanted it to be about them as an individual. So I made the decision and spoke to other consultants and colleagues about it, that if I felt it was going to help a patient by me revealing my background, my history with COVID, then I would do so. So I think that that for a lot of people that were struggling with acceptance and if me being able to say, I know what you're saying because I'm going through it myself, uh, was a real game changer for, for a lot of the patients. I think that the lived experience is very important, not just from a, an empathy point of view, that there's a lot of things, let's face it, that don't add up. And this is very common with a lot of the patients I've seen for years with breathing pattern disorders and with hyperventilation syndrome. Quite often those patients will have normal lung function tests, normal scans for the heart and lungs, but they've got lots of symptoms. This is something that I have read that potentially some of people's breathing and cardiac symptoms in the long COVID could come down to starting diaphragm breathing or or just being much more aware of the breathing. Is that something that you've seen and, and is that possibly true? Massively. And it's, it's not unique to COVID. Uh, as I say, for many years, I've been treating people who have had various types of viruses or even some people with surgery that they change the way that they breathe in that acute episode and then everything gets out of sync and becomes a bit of a chronic pattern and it becomes ingrained. So the typical thing that we would see is people either breathing too often so that they are a hyperventilator, which isn't your classic hyperventilation. Um, it's quite subtle. So that, that's a biochemical problem. Or they will have a biomechanical problem whereby they will be using the wrong muscles. So they'll be using their upper chest muscles and neck muscles to breathe rather than their diaphragm. Can you just explain why the, the former is a biochemical problem? So the, the biochemical problem is when you're over-breathing, it's a, a carbon dioxide problem. So carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas. It's not just a waste product that's nasty it actually helps to regulate everything in our bodies. So carbon dioxide is our primary respiratory driver that will switch your breathing on or off depending what levels it's at. What we know happens in some people is that they overbreathe and the levels that switches their breathing on and off is changed. And then when they breathe normally, they get what they call air hunger. So they'll either breathe more or they may breathe normally for a while and then take a big yawn or a sigh to blow off the carbon dioxide to get down to the level that their body has now become happy with. However, carbon dioxide relaxes smooth muscle, which is involuntary muscle. So it helps to keep airways open to keep blood vessels open, to keep intestines open, basically any tubes that are wrapped with involuntary muscle, then carbon dioxide helps to keep them the way they should be. If you blow off a relaxant, then you get constriction. So airways tighten, blood vessels tighten, and it can have an effect on your gastrointestinal system. And this is something that we've known for years. And I've had so many patients who have been told you've got asthma, you've got asthma, you've got asthma, just take more of your inhalers. Then they eventually get pulmonary function testing, which shows that they don't have asthma, but they're actually chronic, subtle hyperventilators. And the symptoms of hyperventilation are often quite similar to asthma, but the cause is different. And when we retrain their breathing, their symptoms get better. But I know there's been lots of people that have 
felt that they've been referred to long COVID clinics and they've been given some breathing exercises. And I know that in the session you did with Danny, he had said that he'd seen a post of somebody saying, I just got given breathing exercises and I burst into tears. And and then they referred me on for psychological counselling. So I think when I started doing breathing pattern retraining in 1999, I was very much looking at, let's get people doing 8 to 12 diaphragmatic breaths per minute. That's all good. And then I realised that whatever the cause of their bad breathing, there was something underpinning it. There were trigger factors underpinning it. Do those tend to be physiological or psychological, the trigger factors? There is a a massive collection of them. So there are physical things. Uh, Pain is one of them. Temperature is another. Blood sugars, how much sleep you have. And of course, you you talked a little bit about um, how females have been more affected by long COVID. What we know from breathing pattern disorders is that there's one paper that was studied years ago that estimated that seven times as many females had breathing pattern disorders as males because of the hormonal changes <laughs> at puberty, at the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, of um, pregnancy and menopause. So those changes, particularly in the estrogen levels, mean that symptoms will Uh, increase. And the luteal cycle, I'm told, is about 7 to 10 day of the the menstrual cycle. There is a slight increase in temperature, which can cause some women to overbreathe slightly. But then when the hormonal changes go back to where they were before, then the breathing's changed back and they're feeling fine. So we don't see that represented in clinic. And so this is something that's, that's not new to us. I think one of the things with the people being given breathing exercise and sent away is this feeling that a lot of people have that whoever they've spoken to, they feel like they're being dismissed. And then they're being referred for breathing exercises unless they have it explained by you. Yeah. I think what people are feeling is you are saying this is in my head and I just need to breathe better. You're not taking it seriously. So... I think there possibly needs to be some kind of change in the dialogue about it and and an explanation that it's not you causing it. It's not you that suddenly decided that you're just going to do shallow breathing or hyperventilation and an an explanation for people that it does come from somewhere deeper. Indeed. And I think that's something I've been very passionate about as I have progressed through my career, that if you can help people to understand, if you can influence their thought processes and their beliefs, then you'll influence their behavior and you will improve their health. Whereas if you just tell somebody to do something, then they're probably going to not do it, let's face it, Um, particularly if it seems quite counterintuitive. Because I will warn patients that you may feel, feel a little bit worse before you feel better because you're changing something within your body. And Your body likes consistency. And when you change, like if you're stopping smoking, that's a change for the better. However, your body will react to it. If you're changing your breathing, you may get a little bit of a reaction. You may feel a little bit more air hunger, that desire to take that deep breath. That's your body just noticing change. But if that's not been fully explained to somebody, then they're not going to do it. Let's face it, they're not going to do something that's going to give them bad symptoms. And I think one of the things that you'd mentioned there, Emily, about that people are feeling that it's their fault, it's all in their head, etc. For years, I have said to patients, because they'll usually come to me quite frustrated because doctors have told them what's not wrong with them. And they've had scans and said, oh, your heart's fine. Your, your lungs are fine. You're fine they're not fine they don't feel fine so they've been told all the nasty things have been ruled out but they've not been told what is wrong with them and I will often say to patients they're not missing anything you've been thoroughly investigated and you're not going mad this is not all in your head anxiety can certainly play a component 
in it. And let's face it, if you are feeling unwell and if nobody can give you answers, it is a natural reaction for you to feel a bit anxious, but it's not the only factor. And there's lots of physical things that we know, like if people are feeling tired all the time, they will sometimes resort to caffeine and sugary foods and drinks to give them that temporary energy boost. But we know both of those stimulate your breathing. So they actually make things worse and you get into a really bad vicious circle. So it's about trying to get people to look at the whole picture, to give them the education, give them the reassurance that you're okay. You're not going mad. There's nothing seriously wrong with you. But there there are things that aren't correct with you. So what about those long COVID patients that didn't have any ill effects on their lungs, but are still breathless? Yeah, we know that there's a really, a really close relationship between fatigue and breathlessness. So even if they don't seem to have had a primary insult to their lungs, we will still get people who will be short of breath or not breathing correctly without actually realising it and without having had that acute Uh, damage to their lungs. So quite often those patients, they won't report having breathing issues or having lung damage, but quite often they're not breathing correctly. So what I'll often say to them is, look, it's good for all of us to breathe well and to breathe optimally. And we know that if you're not breathing well, then that will influence your fatigue and vice versa. If you're fatigued, then it'll influence your breathing. And so let's think about reining everything back in to try to reduce the fatigue. Let's try to optimise the breathing. Because if you think about what I'd said about the effect that the breathing has on the smooth muscle around the blood vessels, if somebody isn't breathing correctly, even though they've not had a primary lung insult, then their blood vessels to their peripheral muscles, to their brain, to everywhere, can tighten if the carbon dioxide levels have went down, which means that the delivery of oxygen to the target tissues is sometimes not that good, which means that they will get fatigue, true physiological fatigue, a lot earlier. It's absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, people actually either... (laughs) show complete disinterest to what I've got to say are absolutely fascinated by it. So, um, There are so many different symptoms. Like we talk about all the gastrointestinal symptoms and that could be to do with constriction. Or, uh, that's what you're saying, isn't it? You could have potential gastrointestinal disruption from, from the breathing. It could be from various different other things, but it could be uh, a component. And there is a a guru in this field of breathing pattern disorders from New Zealand called Dinah Bradley. And she has worked very closely with gastrointestinal surgeons. And they have been seeing patients that they feel that nothing's adding up. It's not that these patients are needing their gallbladder taken out, etc. But they have got a collection of symptoms. And Dinah had met some of those at a, a conference that she'd been presenting on. And they had noticed that a lot of the patients with unclear gut problems weren't breathing correctly. They'd refer them to Dinah. She would improve their breathing and their symptoms would improve. However, it can also work the other way, that if you have underlying gut problems and that is causing you pain, you're not going to use your diaphragm properly you are possibly not absorbing properly, which means that your blood sugars can be a little bit all over the place. So it is a little bit of a chicken and egg situation at times. It's all a very fine balance, isn't it? And there are other things as well that, um, I I mean, I've not so far had an explanation for why I can always feel the blood, particularly when I'm trying to go to sleep. I can feel it moving in in my head. I, I can really feel my blood vessels essentially and people have said that that's potentially vascular could the carbon dioxide levels be another reason that it's much more pronounced the feeling of blood movement it could be what we know with people who have got breathing pattern disorders from whichever source is that any symptoms they have will be magnified 
if there's something underlying, then those symptoms will be magnified, which is why I always say to my patients, let's get your breathing as good as possible. And then at least we've got an even playing field for the doctors to look into things further. Because if there's things that could be due to hyperventilation, if we can sort that out, it takes that out of the picture. It gives you a little bit more of control. And what's the worst that can happen? Your breathing is optimally as you should do. It may not be a, a magic wand, but at least that bit of cloudiness is cleared. So there are lots of, obviously, long COVID patients out there on waiting lists, hoping to see someone like you. Could you share one or two tips with our listeners that they could do at home to, in order to help them? I think that... There are some good resources, some self-help resources. And I know that Darren had talked about the Long COVID Physio Group. And it is a peer support group because there's so many physios and uh, clinicians who have got Long COVID. But we have also put together resources. So a lot of the breathing exercises that I've talked about uh, are on the, the Long COVID Physio website. So if you go to Long COVID Physio and then go to the resources uh, tab on the website. Yeah, completely correct. The, the other great resource that I use a lot of my patients is that um, people quite often don't realise that they're not breathing well. They'll say, oh, no, my breathing's fine. And I'll see them uh, on a virtual consultation or face to face. And they're really using their upper chest a lot. Um, and they're breathing maybe... 24 breaths per minute, but it's not stereotyped <laughs> hyperventilation type breathing um, that you would see in the movies. It's very subtle. So letting them see the, visit, the videos on the Physios for Breathing Pattern Disorders website, there is, because colleagues of mine have put together videos that will show what is good breathing in various different positions. And that's a really useful resource. I also think that people need to do the basics right. So we know we've talked about sleep disruption and we know that spending time away from screens before you go to bed uh, about having good sleep hygiene. And I think you had another uh, podcast that somebody talked about sleep hygiene, doing all those things to try to get sleep as good as possible, eating well. So I think getting good rounded nutrition of lots of fruit and veg in, lots of protein and um, keeping carbohydrates appropriate. So you're not taking too much, not taking too little. If you're doing less exercise, then if you have lots of carbs to try to give you an energy boost, then you're going to put on more weight. You're going to feel a little bit sluggish. So trying to get all those things, try to get the good foundations set. One of the things that I often say to patients is the rule of P, that you've got to prioritise at the beginning of a day what you really need to do. You've got to plan out your day. You've got to pace yourself. And I know that Darren and others have talked about pacing. You've got to pause before you're forced to stop. And you've got to have patience. The more you get worked up about it, the worse it will be. Yeah, I think that frustration is quite difficult to to overcome. Uh, and Noreen and I were talking yesterday. I think both of us struggle with the with the pacing because we just think how how can you fit two kids, the everything else? How can you then do what your body potentially needs? It's incredibly difficult, and that's where the frustration comes in. It is. And I, I heard on one of your other podcasts, you're talking about that you're on the go all the time and you're working, you've got the kids, you've got everything else to do. And that is quite a typical picture that I'm seeing for a lot of patients. And I must say mainly the female patients um, and they feel really frustrated with things. And it is really difficult to fit it all in. And it does lead to, to massive frustration. And I think that as a clinician, that it is very easy for me to say, well, these are the right things for you to do. But it's the real world that we're living in. And, uh, and people still have to fulfill the roles they're certain, even if they're prioritizing, there's certain things that must be done 
on a daily yeah. basis. Like I can't um, just call the school and say, my kids can't come to school because I can't get out of bed to get them to school. You have to work out the process of how you're going to get them to school, even if you're physically not able to get out of bed to get them there. The cognitive process that you have to go through to organise the logistics for someone else to take them to school is equally exhausting. Indeed. And the the type of patients I'm typically seeing are people that have been on the go all the time. So the first few patients I saw were triathletes, marathon runners, really high-level cyclists, that it was a physical side of things that they were really push, push, push everything to the limit. But then as time has went on, one of the common factors I've noticed is that it is people that have got really busy lives one way or the other, that there's pressure on their lives beforehand, that whether it is that they are working 100-hour weeks or whether they are trying to juggle working with childcare, with um, running the home, with doing sport, with socialising, and there's just too many draws. And we talk about our spheres of, uh, of energy and fatigue that you've got, as you've alluded to before, the physical, the emotional and the cognitive components that is draining on this rechargeable battery that gets drained really quickly, sometimes with no warning, and it's really difficult to recharge. So it is really challenging. If I was going to be cold and clinical, then you're saying to people, well, this is what you need to do to get better. But the real world doesn't allow them to do a lot of those things. So it's trying to get the best fit for that individual and looking at what adaptations can be made uh, to allow that individual to function better and to recover better. And personally, out of if say pre-COVID, you know, what's your level of fitness returned to you? Like I would say, I'm at about sixty, seventy percent, maybe not, maybe fifty percent. <laughs> if I'm honest, I I, I get um, asked that. I get asked that a lot. Um, two things I get asked is what percentage better are you? Because the doctors want a figure. Uh, this is generally yeah. doctors that I'm meeting on the ward that I've got a, a genuine interest rather than doctors that are seeing me clinically, um, and when do you think you'll be back to normal? Um, and so it's really difficult for me to say what percentage I'm back to, um, because as so many people have said, it's nothing tangible that we're looking at. It's not that we're looking at how much further my lung function has got to get back to normal or my heart function. Um, I can't do a full-out fitness test, well, I could, but then I'd be in bed for two weeks. Um, so it's really difficult to, to see where I'm at. Um, so the other thing is that I was working at a really high level. Um, I was, a year before COVID, I did a 249 marathon at the age of 46. So to try to get back to that level um, and the way that I was living my life around that time of doing 15 hours commuting per week, of working full time, of seeing private patients as well, of having a, a wife and daughter and a family and house uh, and then doing all my running, it, I'm not going to get back to normal as it were because I'm never going to go back to that lifestyle. I, it's not defeatist me saying that I'll never be back to that normal. It's a decision that I have made that I don't want to go back to that lifestyle because COVID has hit me hard, obviously, but it probably wasn't the best lifestyle that I was living. If I stand back and look at things, if I was assessing myself, I would say, yeah, you're going to uh, be at risk of burnout. Regarding my exercise, I had said that there's lots of people that had been put on exercise tests and had had long periods of being in bed afterwards. Um, I feel and I have felt all along that my lactate threshold had really dropped. I was used to running at heart rates of 150 beats per minute before I would feel the burn in my muscles. Now with deconditioning, I should have slowed down, but still hit those levels at, at a similar heart rate. If I was walking on an incline, my legs would be burning at 95 beats per minute. 
So to me, that was a physiological change. And doctors had said, well, how do you know that that's happened? What evidence do you have? And I said, well, I've run marathons for 20 years. I know my body really well. So then I spoke to a company that we had a collaboration with. CPNR in Harley Street helped me to devise a test that it would be a submax test that we would have agreed limits that we would not push past based on what uh, I'd been experiencing in my daily life. And sure enough, it showed that my blood lactate levels started to rise at um, 95 beats per minute or 97 beats per minute, I think it was, which is in keeping with a lot of the research that was publicized by the Physio for ME group. And so they had felt that there was a physiological process that was happening that we don't really know what it was but it was causing people's lactate threshold to drop. The theory being that if you can find out what it is, stay below that level, it allows repair and regeneration and recovery without doing further damage and allows you to build up your aerobic fitness below that threshold. So it's quite a learning when I discovered that information. So walking on the flat, I was fine. Having a shower, my heart rate was up to 120 beats per minute. So it it was some of the um, incidental heart rate rises that were actually knocking me backwards. And this was a pattern I saw with my patients as well. Um, and so then I lived my life for three months trying to keep everything that I did below that threshold level of 97 beats per minute. I stopped taking the stairs at work. Um, I stopped doing a lot of activities that were going to take too much out of me or would take twice as long to have a shower because I had to keep on pausing. I would then wrap towels around me before I dried myself. And after three months, my lactate threshold had recovered a little. It went up to 107 beats per minute. And then it is also it has now went up to 120 beats per minute, which is just turns a lot of exercise physiology on its head that I'm doing less and yet one of my essential fitness markers is improving. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? That's fascinating, actually. Because I was going to say, is that not going to then, if, you're, if, you, if you bring it down like that, is that not going to then impact your deconditioning state further? And the answer is possibly no. Well, the interesting thing is to, to walk at set heart rates on the treadmill um, I'm now walking faster than I was way back in January. So that's nothing to do with my uh, where my lactate threshold is. That is just trying to be as objective as possible in a, an area that's quite subjective, that if I keep my heart rate at um, 90 beats per minute, whereas I was struggling to do three miles per hour, I can now go to about four and a half miles per hour because I increased the volume that was safe for me to do, partially because I was doing things slowly, but haven't done the intensity, then I've conditioned my pure aerobic system. And one of the interesting things through my three assessments so far is that they did um, body analysis, which we know has imperfections. Um, one of the things where you stand on the, the plates on the scale and you hold the bars and they look at your body composition. Now, considering that we had agreed that the best thing for me was to reduce intensity of the activities, convention would say that I would lose muscle mass, and yet I didn't. My muscle mass stayed the same. Does that make sense? A lot of COVID stuff doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, and... People may argue that I had already reached a, a level of deconditioning because this was nine months uh, or more into my journey. Uh, however, I was doing less in January, February, March than I was doing in September, October, November. And I had my initial assessment in January or the beginning of February. It shows that if people can keep up and keep doing what they can be doing, without going at too high a level, you can actually maintain 
uh, a good amount of what you've got and you don't get this massive deconditioning, uh, or certainly I didn't. And we, we're trying to gather more information so it's not just about me, but the early indications are there are other patients that CPNR have assessed that they're noticing a similar picture picture to my recovery as long as people stick with the plan. The the thing is, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring the information that we get from accessing uh, people like you to our audience. You have had an incredible battery of tests, tests that I have not previously heard of people having in, in this space and the speed at which you've been able to have them has also been incredible because you're plugged into to that world. Can you give some advice to our listeners of if they think that possibly some of what you've been saying today is ringing true or, or that they might have a, a breathing disorder? You've offered us some resources, but what do they need to do? What do they need to ask for in terms of going to their GP? What tests, what referrals, if they can't get access to a respiratory physio at a long COVID clinic, what things can they be doing for themselves to try and get the help they need? I think it's really a frustrating time for so many people. And so many people have been going to the GPs or sometimes presenting to A&E and hitting a bit of a brick wall because there's nothing tangible that all the tests are showing. I think that the tests that some people need are dependent on that individual. I think that there is a lot of information out there. I think that I've highlighted a couple of good resources through the long COVID physio and through the breathing pattern disorders group. I think getting all the foundations right. Um, So eat well, sleep well, do all the right things. If people are up all night on the internet because they can't sleep, that's not going to help all their symptoms. So I think doing the disciplined things, um, doing the things that people don't really want to do, optimizing their breathing, optimizing their hydration, um, minimizing caffeine intake, alcohol intake, etc., are all things that people maybe don't want to hear, but it is things that anecdotally we're seeing are causing improvements. As we've discussed, the frustration that a lot of people are getting that they can't get the answers they want or they can't get the access to services that they need causes frustration and that causes them to relapse and to go backwards. So I don't have any magic answers, I'm afraid. I mean, all that advice is great, but and for a lot of people, unless you have someone there to kind of give you a push and be there supporting you, which is what your role is, as well as giving medical advice. It's really hard for people to do that. And then on top of that, they have cardiac symptoms, they have lung symptoms, they can't access the MRIs or the CT scans. So they're afraid to go and run or not run or walk or do all these things because they're not sure what it's going to do. So it's really, I'm just really mindful today because we've had a few days of speaking to some really special people that there's so many people out there that, this is not a reality and this is tough to hear because we can give them the information, but they do need the basics. They need access to medical care and they're just not getting it. And that is beyond frustrating. It's not fair. Yeah. So I think that even without the presence of a lot of the tests, then what people have got to try to do is to do a lot of the things that I've talked about, this sustainable baseline of optimizing everything so that you get to a point that is quite a low boring level that you're doing just what you need to do to function um, to make sure that you don't get any crashes. And once you've reached that level, you need to actually just maintain that for about a month, even though you're starting to feel a little bit better. The amount of people that I have heard of that they feel a bit better for a few days, they've achieved their sustainable baseline And then they go out for a run and then they end up back in bed for a few days. So it's about having that patience to get to that sustainable baseline for you to optimize everything you can and then accept that because we've talked about graded exercise and how push, push, push day after day for some people does not work. If people have tried that and it's not worked for them, then 
don't get to a sustainable baseline and then instantly try to do graded exercise training. You actually need to get to a level that you can sustain and be happy with that. And your positives should be an absence of negatives. And that psychologically, that is really, really difficult to take because you just want to get better. But keeping it at that level so that if you can go to having no crashes for a month, no energy crashes, no symptom exacerbation, or if you have a symptom exacerbation, then the following day you may be fine rather than having three or four days to recover. And then you nudge things up slightly. So if you had been able to do two 10-minute walks per day within your sustainable baseline, then you might be doing 12 or 15 minutes per day, but keep it at that level for a period of weeks and then just build it up. And what I found from my experience and I'm seeing with some of my patients now is when we can get them to the level and we can allow that healing to recover of whatever mechanism it is that is yet to be discovered, then things will accelerate. And I mean, I went from walking at a very slow pace to walking a little bit faster for about the same length of time, um, but keeping my heart rate low, to then suddenly, just come June and July, the amount of walking I could do went up remarkably. As long as I kept my heart rate under control, I could walk for 10 miles. Back in January, I tried to go out for a walk with my daughter and she wanted to call my wife because she thought I was going to collapse. So for all that I'm not near what I was, I stuck to that baseline. I stuck to doing all the frustrating things and now I'm reaping the benefits of it to some degree. I'm right on the cusp of getting back to jogging. I'm at the really frustrating level of I can walk at five miles per hour, so eight kilometers per hour, which is fast walking. But if I gently jog, I get a whole load of symptoms. So I've just had to ease back from those trials and continue to just focus on the walking. I think that's some really good advice there. I don't have any magic cures, but I've learned from my experience that doing the things you don't really want to do um, and easing things right back. Um, there's a lot of things that I can now do at quite a low heart rate that I actually couldn't do before COVID. Can I just ask one question? Do you still have a blood clot? No. In your lung? No. It's completely gone. It's quite an interesting one because he has access to all the bells and whistles of the medical profession that very few people, if we're honest, have had access to. And it's interesting to see what journey he went through and where he is now, which is pretty much the same as where we all are, really. Yeah. So many of the people that we speak to, I think I've got that. I've got I've got that symptom or I need to have that help. Um, obviously I don't have all of them and I can't get help from all of these people but there were quite a few things that rang true with, with some of what he was saying Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates and if you found this interesting please do subscribe Thank you.